Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. This time last year, there was much excitement about the re-release of a classic children's book from the 1970s, all about ghosts, from the Usborne World of the Unknown series. If you haven't heard it, then we have an episode in Season 4 of this podcast all about that. The book was, naturally, a huge success, and soon after release, everyone was back on social media asking when the next in the series would come out. At the time, there were no plans. Would a reprint of a book written and illustrated some 40 years ago still be relevant today? Well, the answer was a resounding yes. And so... Today, on the Folklore Podcast, we return to the Usborne Stable to discuss the next book to come out from this series, all about UFOs. As much of a classic as the Ghosts title, this is also a subject which we've not yet covered on the podcast, and so naturally the conversation diverts off into the field more generally. Joining me for this episode are two very special guests. David Clark is a lecturer in journalism at Sheffield Hallam University and a past guest of the podcast. A well-known and respected folklorist too, David acted as the official spokesperson when the Ministry of Defence declassified many of their UFO documents from the National Archives. His book based on this, UFO Drawings from the National Archives, was a nominee for the Catherine Briggs Award, and his previous title, How UFOs Conquered the World, is an in-depth study of this area through the lens of folklore. And John Culshaw is an actor, comedian and TV impressionist known for his work on Dead Ringers amongst many other programmes. John is a keen astronomer and writes much on the subject of space, including regular contributions to The Sky at Night. He is also responsible for writing the foreword to All About UFOs. Uh, I'd just like to start by asking both of you, and uh, John, you can go first, I think, with this one, um, why this book is particularly significant and particularly important to you. It brings back such wonderful memories. The time when it came out, 1977, I was nine years old, deeply fascinated by UFOs and the paranormal. Um, I caught that wonderful documentary on the BBC around about 1977, Out of This World, presented by Hugh Burnett, which had the most wonderful atmosphere to it, almost like a factual quatermass. It was beautiful. And I watched it with a kind of deep fascination, also edged with a fearful sense, a similar feeling to watching some of John Pertwee's Doctor Who from that time um, and just hearing these wonderful accounts from people who had had their own UFO sightings. The wonderful Jessie Rostenberg, there she was. It was like a big Mexican hat and it circled and then it was gone and I saw it and it happened to me. And the beautiful way that they were describing the sightings, um, another one, the Winchester encounter, um, Joyce Bowles and friend of the family, Mr. Pratt, and there they were in a mini clubman talking about an orange light. And the fellow 
stepped from this, walked over to my car, put his hand on the roof and looked in. Just utterly fascinating, engaging and compelling. And in 1977, when we didn't have the iPlayer or even videotape particularly, we didn't in our house anyway, the only other way that you could get some more, you could get another fix of your fascination with UFOs was via a book. And Usborne's All About UFOs was another way to get at it. And it's an early memory, an early fascination with UFOs. And that's why it's indelible in my mind. It kept the fascination going. Yeah, I, th I think that's the case for all of us. I mean, we're, we're all of a similar age here, I think. And, and we all remember it undoubtedly from the beginning of the nonfiction run in the school library. Uh, I certainly remember accessing it in that way as well. Dave, I'm sure you did as well. And this was responsible, really, for shaping your whole career path, wasn't it, this book, in many ways? Yeah, I suppose it was. I didn't realise it at the time, but I, I don't know. I think me and Jonathan must have been separated at birth because I watched exactly the same programme out of this world and it just blew yes. my mind at the time. And I was watching Doctor Who as well. But I suppose all nine and ten-year-olds were. I, I was. I think it must have been slightly older. I think I was ten and the other one, the other thing I remember that really stuck in my mind from that period was, did you used to watch John Craven's News Round? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Do you remember the episode that he went to Wales and there was the school kids who'd seen the flying saucer land in the, in the schoolyard at lunchtime and they'd all sort of rushed up to it and seen this flashing lights and a, a tall silver alien with pointy ears that came out, etc., etc. I don't think it's mentioned in, in the book, but again, I remember seeing that. And because it was presented in that sort of factual, you know, news reporting style, you know, th there was something inside me, which, I mean, I became a, because I became a journalist, I suppose I was interested in this sort of like being like an amateur detective and this being presented as a riddle that needed to be solved. You know, were, were we being visited by aliens or was it all in the imagination, which strangely enough is, is that exactly what it says on page two of, of the book, which I've just been uh, looking at <laughs> so so yeah i, I mean and, and the usborne book was just one of a whole series um of books that influenced me around that time and i had sort of a small group of friends all aged sort of nine ten just on that cusp of going to comprehensive school or whatever it was back then and we were all into the same things and uh, we all used to sort of gather together and go out on ex expeditions into the city center to see who could buy the latest paperback so, you know, we had Von Daniken's uh, Chariots of the Gods, we had the Bermuda Triangle, and it, it was, I mean, like Jonathan says, it, it was like the book was the only way that you could access that, that kind of arcane knowledge. So I sort of like put those things, childish things away for a time when I was sort of went to university and got a job on that. And then I was reintroduced to the subject when I was a journalist. And it was, so it's been like a weird sort of, you know, sort of a circular sort of thing. I've now been re-reintroduced to it all again <laughs> some 40 years later. Yeah, that's yeah. the lovely thing, I think, the way that the facts still stand up. The way it was written, it wasn't written in a patronising way, it wasn't written in a childish way. Uh, it, it's rooted in good, strong scientific plausibility, yep. uh, exploring how things might work based on the science that we know. Uh, so, so that believable sense really kept you with it and it still stands up now yes it really does and I, I, i'm going to come back in a minute i think to that whole plausibility element as well but just to start at the beginning of the book 
and also the beginning of where UFOs become more mainstream, I guess. Um, June the 24th, 1947, Kenneth Arnold's sighting of saucer-shaped objects is really where it all begins. And it's, it's the starting point in, in the Usborne book as well, what is a UFO? Mm. Prior to 1947, how did we think of UFOs, if indeed we did, in the same way? Well, I think the thing about 1947 is it provided like um, almost like a, a, a tag for the subject in that you've got this catchy phrase, flying saucers. And what people, people have been seeing odd things in the sky for centuries. I mean, there's the whole section on ancient astronauts and then... There were people seeing mystery zeppelins, wasn't there, around the turn of the previous century. And Charles Fort's books, which I was massively into around the same time, are full of sightings during the Victorian era. But because things like um, Fiery Crescent and Phantom Zeppelin don't have quite the same sort of ring about them that flying saucers do. And the interesting thing is that the, the, the key thing about Kenneth Arnold was he didn't actually see flying saucers. This is what interests me from a journalistic perspective. What he actually said, he saw batwing-shaped objects, a bit like the B-2 bomber um, that we're all familiar with. But it was when he landed after seeing these, this weird sort of echelon formation of nine objects, and he described them to the, to the newsmen who were waiting for him at the airport because he'd radioed this ahead. And they said, can you describe how, how they moved, Kenneth? Because he couldn't quite describe the shape of them. And he said, oh, like you, if you took a saucer and you skipped it across a pond like that. And some enterprising sub-editor somewhere came up with the phrase flying saucers. And then, of course, everyone, people around the world started seeing flying saucer-shaped objects, but they were also seeing torpedo-shaped objects, um, circular objects. I mean, there's a whole, I think there's a two-page spread in the book, isn't there, showing all the different shapes. But, interestingly, they, I just find it fascinating that although Kenneth Arnold didn't, see flying saucers and then for years afterwards he was saying they weren't saucer shaped people then went on seeing flying saucers so in terms of like plausibility if you think about this either either the aliens changed the shape of their flying machines in order to sort of um, be consistent with a, an error made by a journalist or else people there's something odd going on there isn't there don't you think mm. I think I remember that, that that fellow who coined the phrase flying saucer. He was featured on Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious oh. World, I believe. He spoke about it on there, didn't he? Yeah, they took him back up in the um, aeroplane yes. and flew him over where he'd seen it. Yes. And so interesting to pick out 1947, just to go back to Out of This World again. That fascinating interview with Gordon Crichton. Oh, yes. What a fellow, Gordon Crichton. Yeah. And he was saying, I, uh, someone I always like to copy and impersonate, certainly since the end of the last war, with the first release of nuclear energy, which I'm sure is connected with it. And he spoke in this beautifully clipped 1950s sense mm. um, that this could well have, we could have drawn attention to ourselves by this. Um, and he was sure that was a strong connection with it. A fascinating fellow, Gordon Crichton. I remember... Also in that interview, he held up diagrams of a one of the, the Hopkinsville goblins oh, Hopkins. and another one, that, that this very tall, pointy-eared creature that was seen in a, a Renault factory in Cordoba in 1972. And I put myself in the position of the workers in that factory. Imagine encountering a creature like this. It sort of gave me um, very enjoyable nightmares throughout the 1970s flashbacks to that image 
some some wonderful fellow, Gordon Crichton. Don't forget Lord Clancarty, who was the, uh, the yes. believe that flying saucers used to come out of the holes in the poles, the North and South Pole, and they had bases inside the Earth. And when it was pointed out to him that this was all based upon a photograph or series of photographs taken from space by NASA, and the way they'd piece them together, there was like, you know, black holes at the top and bottom of the Earth. And it was pointed out to them to him that that's where the, the supposed holes were. He said, oh, well, yeah, they would, they would say that, wouldn't they? You know, so it was all <laughs> cover-up. Yeah, seems... Go on, John. No, I don't know. I was, I was just going to say I'd read about that in the Unexplained magazine, which is uh, uh, another great title we can, we can draw upon. Oh, absolutely. But, um, that was a bit later, I think, wasn't it? The 1980s? Mm. Yeah, 80, 81, I think, yeah. yeah. That was another similar situation. Every Monday I'd get my fix of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And then very soon after the Unexplained magazine came out with that very chilling TV commercial with the blue light and the glass and that voiceover, the Unexplained, Standing Stones, UFOs, Unexplained. It just stays with your imagination forever. It's so vivid to me. Yeah, it, it really does. I, I still have a full set of the Unexplained as well uh, upstairs, which, which I still draw on from time to time. I'd like to return briefly to to this issue of plausibility and and a case that you've already mentioned there which is the um hopkinsville case the kentucky goblins however you want to shape it um i think in terms of folklore that's a really really important ufo case isn't it um dave say a little bit about the hopkinsville case yeah the interesting thing about that is i mean i'm just looking here at the page and it, it sort of almost like takes me back when i look at that page to um being a 10 year old there's a double page spread thing towards the back <laughs> the end of the book where it says is this what the planet looks like that the kelly hopkinsville goblins came from and there's all these like weird plants and things flying around in the background and the interesting thing is that that story is presented in a sort of a, a modern technological context that these creatures who suddenly appeared, you know, around this house and like laid siege to it. And the, these excitable hillbillies fired at these things with their shotguns and there was a loud plopping noise or something and they fell backwards. It, it's all presented in this sort of, it's, 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 a, tra it's a traditional sort of, if you, if you set that story in, say, Devon, Mark, Mm. You know, and you took it back two hundred years. It would be it would be a fairy story, wouldn't it? It would be sort of goblins, and I know they are called goblins, but the way the story is presented in these books, these UFO books, it's in a very secular context. In that these were it was either aliens or it was a hoax. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've spoken to some folklorists from Kentucky. They all they all say, oh yeah, the, the Hopkinsville goblins. It's not an isolated incident. There is actually a tradition in that part of Kentucky. Where there's um, there's there's a there's a there's some deep mines or something, and these goblins are believed to live in the mines. So you don't you don't hold with the explanation that it was owls then? <laughs> because because that is the official debunking of that case, isn't it? it that they were shooting at owls. Yes, and and the the, the report to that, which you get from a lot of the people who, who are proponents of UFO cases, is. Well, the, 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 the Kelly family, or whoever they were, must have seen owls all the time, so they, how could they possibly have been mistaken? You know, it's a bit like the, how could the, um, the, the airmen at the um, Rendlesham Forest incident have mistaken a lighthouse for a UFO? They must have seen the lighthouse every night. Well, 
yes, but you can see familiar things in extraordinary circumstances, and suddenly they become they become a lot weirder than what they normally are. So it's all about the context and what else is going on. Yeah, and we don't really know what really was going on with the uh, with the Hopkinsville story because we, you know, it wasn't really properly investigated at the time. No, it is in terms of folklore, it's a fascinating case. But also in ter- in terms then of of this scientific side that you're talking about, John, uh, and the plausibility of these sorts of things, you cite that example, don't you? In in how that page in the book then influenced you when you were writing about the scientific side of astronomy in terms of exoplanets and things like that. So it, it goes a long way, doesn't it, in both directions? Oh, yeah, it really, really does. That that was a big influence um, and, and a memory that, that, that stayed with me. For about six years, I, I wrote a column in Sky at Night magazine called Exoplanet Excursions, which would take all of the, the, the details and the data that we know about conf- confirmed exoplanets. And from that, you try to put together a plausible picture about what you might see, what you might experience if you went to a Kepler or a Gliese exoplanet somewhere. Um, and the way that from simply the way these creatures were said to appear with the big eyes and the, and the, 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 the ears and the relatively small height, to try and put together the kind of conditions on a planet that would have caused those creatures to evolve that way. And it was perfectly set out. Maybe there's less light there than we would be used to on the planet Earth, hence the big eyes and and so on. All of this plausibility put together, which gave you this very tangible feeling of what could be a real alien world. And in the 70s, when you're in primary school and, you know, you're, you're looking for something to uh, fire the imagination, something to take you away from the mundane. Yeah. Uh, the vision of an alien world with such plausibility rooted in scientific theory. What a piece of fascination. I, I, did, I did want to go and visit the Hopkinsville world. It, mm. it seemed like a rather chirpy, happy place to me. Certainly, the, the representation of it in the book is exactly that, isn't it? And I think that is one of the beauties of, of these um, these titles as well. Is is the uh, the artwork that goes along with them is, is yeah. also become iconic, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, the um, the, the uh, Hopkinsville goblin makes it onto the front cover. Um, yes, exactly. Couldn't you just imagine a member of Made in Chelsea wanting one as a pet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they would. They would become the next, the next kind of token. Yes, this is like my little space chihuahua, little chihuahua from space, adorable. <laughs> I, I would, I would, I would love to see that. I really would. Um, so when we look at this idea of um, these kind of big-eyed creatures that you're talking about, from you know, it's perfectly scientifically plausible. Going back to something you said as well, Dave, earlier on about fairies and, and fairy stories, there, there is this whole theory, isn't there, that, that um, many of the UFO abduction cases, many of the reports of alien uh, contact in UFO cases are simple retellings of what two, three, four hundred years ago people talked about with with being pixie led and being taken by the fairies and changelings and all these kinds of things 
is what we're looking at with some of these UFO cases just a different cultural representation of a trope that we see in other ways? Yeah, I think I think so. It's very much it's quite complicated though. And in, in 1977, when this book was published, the alien abduction thing really had yet to take off. I think I think the Betty and Barney Hill story uh, is mentioned in the book, um, and that was quite well known at the time. But we didn't have the big sort of mania about finding alien abduction um, people like like that emerged in the 19 1980s. And I, th- I think. The, the 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 way to sort of contextualize the thing about the the connection with folklore is is that you know if we look at david hufford's work the um the bloke that, that wrote um the terror that comes in the night he actually was a scientist who was saying that there's a whole range of like weird sort of experiences that people have that are actually rooted in real experience in that um it's sleep paralysis that people are experiencing and that you know there's sort of the common thing where you wake up in the middle of the night and you feel a pressure on your chest and the presence in the room. And this is something that he found in Newfoundland where he was doing his field work. And he looked, he, he sort of looked in other cultures all around the world and found that just about everyone had got versions of this, what is a real physiological experience. And everybody who reported it, reported it in the, in the context of their supernatural tr- traditions and folklore. Mm. You know, so some people reported it as like a, some kind of hungry ghost or nightmare. And you got the, you got it appearing also in the UFO literature um, where you've got aliens and creatures with big eyes appearing in pe- people's bedrooms at night. And you can see how someone who has a weird experience of that kind, where would they turn to? To find to get to, to to find an explanation or to understand it, the obvious place in the in the in the, the current um, the last twenty thirty years, you'd go straight online or you'd see some program on TV like we've been talking about. Mm. Uh, these are aliens that are coming and taking you at night. So you can see there's a, there's a quite clear um, progression in the in the way that someone has a real experience and then tries to find some context to explain it. And the obvious place to go. Is like the modern storytellers, the modern folklorists, who are the uh, the ufologists, who had, yeah. you know, they've got their own websites and discussion groups, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In Victorian times, it would have been Krampus or the Boogeyman who was coming for you. you know? yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we do make those references. But it's very, it's interesting you mentioned Betty and Barney Hill there. I think that is one of the. Um, most believable and plausible cases in amongst all of these because they weren't looking for any attention or notoriety. That was the last thing they would have wanted. They were just ordinary people really. And for that to to happen to them. um, And of course, under hypnosis, Betty recalling the positioning of all of the stars. Uh, She didn't have any astronomical knowledge, but yet this tale that she was under hypnosis recalling real astronomical configurations and the lines that she'd been told by these creatures supposedly some some lines between stars and planets were trade routes others were simply um just for just for exploration and uh, and the lines to the sun and the earth were trade routes so they say but yeah they they didn't want uh, they didn't want any attention of this kind um, and that makes that makes their case very compelling, I think. The interesting folkloric link in there is the bit where um, I can't remember at which stage when she's having the conversation with the with the UFO captain, 
And she says, well, nobody's going to believe me when I go back. Is there anything you can give me so I can produce it as proof? And there's a book that's got, I think, some of these maps that you're talking about, Jonathan, there. Mm -hmm. And she's wanting to take this book. And she thinks she's about to get get away with this book as proof. And this, this then this captain has a conference with the other crew members and says, oh, no, 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 we can't let you go with that, and takes yes. it from her. But, I mean, there's, it's so similar to some of the stories, the traditional fairy stories, isn't it, where people bring something back from fairyland, and then when they come back to the, the you know island or wherever this is going on, it just crumbles into dust. Yeah. Or they, or they realize, or, they, or it turns out that they've been away a hundred years when they think it's only, you know, a couple of hours, and they don't recognize everybody, anybody in the, you know, in the town where they've re returned. So yeah, yeah, there, there, there are a lot of similarities. You're right. The, the the fairy king gives you a bag of gold, which is just yeah. dry leaves when you come back to your yeah. Yeah, but I'm sure. I mean, did Betty and Barney Hill read these obscure Irish folktale books? You know, I'm sure she didn't. No, so no, where no. did she get that information from? That's exactly what I was going to ask. So, how should we be reading these sorts of cases? You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to, to pour derision on a lot of these cases and to just say, oh, you know, it's it's a blatant hoax, or, or people are, are looking for some kind of recognition or, or whatever. But you're absolutely right, John. They, they weren't looking for any of that. Mm. There was no reason for, for you know, a, a blatant hoax in that way. They didn't want that recognition. So how should we be reading those sorts of cases? I suppose there's a trend in uh, human interpretation and perception. It follows certain rhythms which follow the sense of a, a fairy story. But that could be just simply uniform human perception trying to deal with something quite, quite extraordinary. Mm. I said that as Patrick Moore. I'm not sure why. <laughs> I was really hoping that Patrick Moore would put an appearance in. Yeah. Well, I think so. I think so. <laughs> it's inevitable, isn't it, with a subject like He this? would always say, he would always say, a, lot, a great deal of this, a great deal of this is probably bunk. Perhaps even 97% of it, absolute bunk. It is the remaining 3%, and Arthur C. Clarke would agree with me, that keeps this subject very, very extraordinary, and why it should com command our attention. Patrick, yeah, Moore, Patrick Moore, of course, added to the bunk himself by writing a fake flying saucer book called Flying Saucer from Mars. And when I went to interview him, uh, 2006, I think it was, I presented him with a copy of it and said, would you sign that, Patrick? <laughs> he wasn't very happy. I was going to say, did he sign it? He wouldn't sign it. No, no. no that was, I wrote that when I was... Uh, just feeling in a certain mood one day. <laughs> <laughs> there we are, we have confession. <laughs> there, are some, there are some classic cases, though, aren't there, in this book? Um, you know, the, the, the big and notorious cases. Um, I, I open it randomly on a page, and I've got the Flying Cross, which is one from down here in Devon, yep. uh, and uh, up against the Washington Invasion, and you can't get a much bigger place <laughs> than that. And so... Um, so, uh, any particular? Either of you got any particular favourites um, from from these kinds of cases that you think are worthy of still being in a book like this? Isn't it? Well, in terms of proof and and things that remain completely unexplained, the one that really sticks in my mind is the Socorro one. You know, the uh, the police officer that saw the big oh yeah shape thing with the yeah Lonnie Zamora. That's the one. Yeah, yeah Lonnie Zamora. Yeah. Yes, once, once, once again, that, that, that takes me back to the Unexplained um, magazine. Um, 
But it, once, once again, you have somebody in a position of authority to whom this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, as that's why I think it's always worth listening to to pilots, jet pilots in the military as well, who speak about this with a, a scientific sense of plausibility. And Lonnie Zamora was certainly in that category, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the other case that's in there, which I later went on and got very involved in like reinvestigating it, and I'm, I was amazed to find it, that's where I must have originally seen it, is the one from RAF Lake and Heath in the 1950s, which is quite a complicated case to sort of put in a chil- effectively a children's book. But this is the one where um, various radar stations in Norfolk were seeing all these like weird things buzzing around on radar and these scrambled jets to intercept them and all kinds. And then when I was a journalist, I was working on this story. I think it was for a BBC programme. I actually ended up tracking down the, the pilots who had never spoken before. This was in the late 1990s and who actually were actually in those um, those RAF jets that were scrambled to go and investigate this thing. And I remember interviewing this guy about how he tried to, how he tried to sort of get um, approached this thing and he got the guy on the radar saying it's behind you it's behind you and you kept sort of like you know the panic was rising inside this jet and this is like right at the height of the cold war you know when they thought third world war was going to break out at any moment so you know it, obviously these things were taken very very seriously at the time which is why there was all the secrecy about them so it's amazing that the way that they're portrayed in that book in a very sort of scientific sort of no-nonsense way, you know, not sort of made a sort of a laughing matter like you would get in, in probably in children's literature today or, or in a sort of, in a, I don't know, things just don't seem to be presented in the same way to spark the imagination as they were back then. No, I think it, you're right. Yes, all of, all of the... Um... All, all of the nonsense, all of the sense of bunk was just stripped away and the sense of that book is, right, okay, let's have a look Let's have a look at what we have here with some clarity and let's try and assess what it might mean. Um, and I, I did always respect that book for its great sense of plausibility. But there was uh, fun I, as well, weren't there? There was fun. There was uh, out oh, yes. your own UFO photo. I mean, I'd, yeah. I remember having read that, going out with my friends and like we, we took various photographs, throwing frisbees and sticking things to windows and photographing through the window, that kind of thing, and then going to our mums and saying, oh, look, we've seen a flying saucer, and seeing whether we could... Uh... That gave you a great sense of, when you were reading about other cases, that helped you gauge a sense of what to believe and what to dismiss. So that was useful in its own way. Yeah. Mm. And also, there are some practical elements which, which I think are great in here. And I, I remember um, when we were talking last year about the Ghosts book, um, uh, Anna from, from Osborne, I think it was, saying how um, Reese had certainly um, been one of these people who did the, the cut out and construct Borley rectory that you could do in three <laughs> <laughs> And there's this fantastic one, isn't there, in here where, where they're talking about um, the pyramids in Egypt and these kind of possible connections with UFOs, and you've got the cut out and build pyramid. <laughs> where you can try and preserve your own rasher of bacon yeah. by by cutting the pyramid out of this book and yes. constructing your own pyramid. And there's we tried that. little scientific experiment where you put your bacon in the pyramid and just check it. Yeah. Oh, it I've still got mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of candle wax. <laughs> but, but, but you're right where you say... Um, 
that you don't get children's books in quite the same way now as well. And that scientific side is very well explored in these books as well. Yes. This whole section on how a flying saucer might work, where they start talking about, you know, air intakes and magnetic field generators. And, and you know, this is a primary school book and they, they, yeah. they don't dumb it down, um, which I think is one of the beauties of it, isn't it? It's so interesting. We uh, we were talking about John Craven's news round there, and the science uh, editor at the time, uh, Reg Turnill, I think was his name. Uh, he he spoke and made his presentations in that way, um, with, with a real sense of seriousness, uh, not dismissive at all. And you, you did respect him for that. You were grateful for the manner in which he was presenting it in that fashion. And we should remember this was part of a series. This book, so we, I mean, we've, I think you've done a, a program on the um, on the ghost book, haven't you, uh, Mark? Yeah. But there's also a monster one as well, which I don't remember very much. But I certainly remember the UFO and the and the ghost one. Mm. Yes, funny yeah. every issue the monster volume as well. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope that this time next year we'll be doing the same thing again with with uh, Nessie on the front cover. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Dave, you you have spent an awful lot of time in the UFO archives in your capacity as as spokesperson for the declassification of a lot of this stuff and whatever. Um, so you have a good insight into what is actually recorded in a lot of these cases compared to what makes it into books, whether they're children's books or, or otherwise. Um, is there much to learn from looking at these declassified documents or are they actually not as exciting as people think they probably will be? Well, I think if people approach them from the point of view of they're only interesting if they prove what I think UFOs are, i.e. a lot of people are looking for evidence to, to, to support a pre-existing theory, i.e. that we're being visited by aliens, they've crashed and the government are keeping it all secret. So if the files don't contain anything of that kind, which they don't, then they're either totally uninteresting, so I can't be bothered even looking at them, or we can just say they're all a whitewash and the real files have been hidden away somewhere else. Um, but I think to, to sort of answer your question in terms of the, the context of, of the files, they do actually contain the bare bones of what people say they've seen, because people who go to the... When, when you see something odd in the sky, you, who do you tell Usually, you might tell your mates in the pub, or your or your wife or girlfriend, or you know, or keep it to yourself. But but to actually go to the extent of phoning the police to actually properly report something, or your local RAF station or something, that really weeds out a lot of people. And and I think usually the people who reported things were genuinely scared or upset, or for some reason felt that they needed to report what they'd seen to to the to the authorities, but. Going back to the book, when you actually look at, I think it's quite important that, that we were talking about the artwork, the dramatic artist's impressions of what people had seen, I find really interesting because you find these on the, the, the more garish covers of the, the UFO books that were published in the 50s and 60s as well. And, and actually, when you look at the actual accounts, when you actually interview some of the people who say that they've seen these things, the actual stories are very shall we say, not as dramatic as the artist's impressions would 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 imply. Mm. Take my meaning. So 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 really the, the the myth of the UFO, if that's what you want to call it, or the folklore of it, is, is something that's been perpetuated, I think, by pop pop culture and by these kinds of artist impressions and films and stuff, rather than people's actual experiences. So where the MOD files come in 
handy is you, you can actually strip all that away and you've actually got people's accounts that they wrote down contemporaneously of things that they reported to the police or the RAF or whoever. And you often, and what you then realize is that the actual, some of these sensational stories, like the Flying Cross that you mentioned, are nothing like they were depicted in the media at the time. You know, I mean, those, those police officers, they, they saw, they looked through a, a blurry window of the panda car and saw a point of light in the distance, which, you know, because the window was blurry, it was sending out rays in different directions. So it looked like a cross. And they started driving towards it. And, of course, the, the, the Dartmoor landscape, as you know, Mark, there's lots of twists and turns and ups and downs and this, that and the other. Yeah. And actually, when, when they, they sent this guy out, this spook from Whitehall who interviewed them, and he, he just sort of said, well, it wasn't actually moving the light at all, was it? It was you that was moving in the panda car. Uh, mm, ah, yeah, maybe it was planet Venus. <laughs> very, very bright at the time. But, as you said earlier, you know, with the police officer, there's this idea that police officers and um, pilots and et cetera, et cetera, that they have some kind of supernatural ability to see things and not make mistakes when they, mm. when they report them. You know, but we, we're all human beings, aren't we? And we all yeah. can misinterpret yeah. things. Yeah, absolutely. That could have been a security light on a barn, you know, who knows? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. people love a good mystery, so... It, yeah. People tend to suspend their disbelief. And that story that happens in uh, 1979 over New Zealand, mm. uh, the aeroplane carrying the newspapers with the yeah. journalist on board. Now, this is a great one uh, of this period um, where I remember his words. Uh, it seems they're following us. Yes, they're following us. Let's hope they're friendly. <laughs> now, that, that's a particularly fascinating case. That one, I think, stands up to the scrutiny of the decades. Do you remember that was actually the top item on the news? On, on I think, was it New Year's Eve, 1978 or something? Yes, it was, yes. I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, they're, they're coming, they're at the landing, and because Close Encounters of the Third Kind was showing at the same time, I believe, or thereabouts, it mm. all seemed to be like building up to something and that the proof would soon be here. It's just around the corner, and we're still hearing that today. You know, there's all this stuff about the um, this this new Pentagon investigation of UFOs that's come to light. You know, with these blurry videos that's been filmed by the Navy pilots. And again, if you go online and you you, you sort of join these UFO discussion forums, exactly the same things that we were talking about in the 1970s. That oh yeah, the evidence inescapable, and you know, there's there's going to be mass landings, and the government are going to disclose the truth. The, 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 it, it's almost like people are reinventing the wheel every few years and we're going right down the same, tilting at the same windmills, you know. Yeah. That's what I find fascinating. I do wonder why governments would want to cover up the idea of UFOs or uh, t terrestrial beings from another world. If we could prove that, that would be the greatest discovery of mankind, I think, from every single point of view. Yeah. It puzzles me as to why that would want to be covered up and, unless... As Gordon Crichton hinted, uh, if people knew what I knew about this subject, they could be very alarmed. You know, just to take it back there, but to me, it would be the greatest thing that, that could happen to the human race. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah. Everybody loves a good conspiracy theory, though, don't they? So oh, it's always <laughs> going to be a prime subject for that sort of thing, isn't it? I have a theory that uh, any alien race are probably uh, uh, the, the human race's stage of existence were probably being observed in a comparable way 
to how Sir David Attenborough would look at penguins. Observe, be fascinated, maybe have a little walk up. Don't get too close yet. We can't trust their... This is the aliens speaking. We, we can't trust the collective response of human beings. It would be a little unwieldy, unpredictable. Let them be for a while. Let's come back in 200 years. At the moment, it would be like us sticking our arm in a hornet nest. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that would be a view from somewhere beyond the stars. Who knows? I think you're probably right. Um, ju- just to kind of wrap up, because I- I'm very aware of the time, particularly for you, Dave. Um, surely to suggest that we are that important that we are being visited by all these people from other worlds is is very arrogant and surely to suggest that we are the only intelligent life in what is a vast universe is also very arrogant isn't it so what's going on here i think we're just at a stage where we don't quite know um the human race the we are in astronomical terms of time we are a pretty young species we are a toddler um give us 10 million years who knows what we will be capable of we probably then will have earned the right to join a galactic community we we will be talking to the people who spoke to betty and barney hill um i think perhaps they just dip in and out at this stage because that's the wisest thing to do um it will take a lot more time i would imagine um once we've settled down as a species and we've evolved past the need to go to war and political dogma and all of these types of things we've got a long way to go maybe later when we're a bit closer to being time lords or jedi maybe then we can join in maybe then we will know what is really going on up until then we just have these pockets of mystery that glisten rather like sunlight catching the the ocean you get a a, a glint of light but then it's gone we only have clues at the moment more knowledge will come sometime down the centuries that's my imagination anyway but it feels plausible to me i i i think it's it's totally plausible and that's that's looking at it very much from the the, the kind of scientific angle as well Dave, um, in terms of human beings and, and our consciousness and, and that kind of level of belief that we have, that we look at as folklorists as well, what's going on for you here? Well, there's, there's as many theories about, to explain UFOs, as there are UFO sightings, but the one that's always appealed to me and that I think is the most probable is the theory that, that, that was formulated by Carl Jung, the, um, the Swiss... Um, psychologist and the idea that what these things are are as he called them technological angels and that you know all through history people have, have liked to imagine that there are other creatures out there who are watching over us sometimes good sometimes evil um particularly at times of crisis that we sort of project things you know into the sky we see people used to see angels and demons and now they're seeing sort of aliens riding around in spacecraft so I, I really that, that's the theory that really I, I find after all these years is the most satisfying one and the fact that we're debating this kind of level of, of uh, detail into these sorts of cases and the kind of angles that we're approaching based on the fact that we are talking about a children's book from the 1970s yeah. <laughs> I think is, is testament to exactly what it is that these 
books that Osborne are re-releasing contain, isn't yeah. it? And why they actually are so important and, and why they've left such a, a legacy behind them that, that even today we still not only remember them fondly, but refer to them and use them as a springboard to have this sort of discussion. It's amazing. Yeah, it? exactly. That's what they did. Yes, it fires the imagination. Um, I believe the universe is far too vast and infinite and far too many stars and planets. Uh, it seems absurd that um, the Earth is the only planet where life has occurred. Um, I've heard many astronomers saying that life is probably an inevitability. The real question is how common or rare it is. Uh, the building blocks of life that, that we know, oxygen, hydrogen, carbon, they are some of the most common in the universe. So to say that uh, the Earth is the only place where this has happened, what was that phrase by Neil deGrasse Tyson? Um, to say that Earth is the only place where life has taken hold is rather like scooping up a cup full of water and saying that there aren't any whales. <laughs> what we need is, is some um, example of, a, of life that's evolved outside of the Earth, and the best place to look for that where they are looking at the moment is Mars. Oh, yeah. That's where yeah. we'll find the answer, I think. Exciting decades to come, below the polar caps on Mars, Europa, around Jupiter and Enceladus. If we can just have that confirmation that life took hold somewhere else, it completely changes the entire complexion of but the subject. Um, when we do find it, I think it will be just a tiny little speck of um, microbe rather than the Kelly Hopkinsville goblin. <laughs> won't spoil it for me. Not, not at all. It's, it's as important, isn't it? it really is. uh, John, Dave, thank you both very much for taking the time to, to join me to, to talk about this subject and, and more importantly about, about the Usborne book. Uh, for those that are interested, the book is available to pre-order now through all the usual kind of book ordering channels um, and, and is published uh, officially in October. And um, Let's hope that we see the success for this one that we saw from Ghosts and that this time next year we can all sit down and talk about monsters in quite the same way. Uh, but for now, thank you both very much indeed. Thank Great you. Thank you. Wishing you clear skies. I'm grateful to John for taking the time out of his busy schedule to give the Folklore Podcast the first interview on the subject of this book, and of course to David for his expert input. All About UFOs is available to pre-order now and is released in October 2020. Remember, if you're listening to this episode on release, then this weekend, September the 26th and 27th 2020, is the Rural Gothic Online Conference. Ten speakers over two days on a variety of topics and one ticket price of just £10 for the whole event. The full lineup and tickets can be found at bit.ly slash ruralgothic. Don't forget that we're putting out an episode every week throughout September. If you'd like to see and hear more content from the podcast every month, then please remember that it is only your support of the show on Patreon or donations via the website which make the whole project possible. We are so grateful for every bit of support, no matter how small. Our next goal is very close on Patreon now, and hitting that will mean an increase in the frequency of content permanently. Head over to www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast to help us. Don't forget, you'll also get bonus content, discounts from lectures and the folklore shop, 
and much more. If you can't help this way, or through a donation on the website, then do please give us a good review on your podcast app of choice, or even just share our episodes on social media. Every interaction is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Next week, I'll be talking to Carnegie shortlisted author Zana Freylon about Australian folklore and the ways that she uses it in her writing, particularly her new title, The Lost Soul Atlas. In the meantime, here to sing us out this week is Polly Preacher, with the appropriately named Beam Me Up. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Sad man's heart, it is darker than mine. I saw the evidence of it last night. You'd better believe that I ran for my life. I climbed out the window and I ran, I ran, I ran, I ran across the fields where nobody goes. Oh, then came the slow bubbling of the toads. I felt my heart thundering in my temples. Oh, down in my ankles, in the points of my elbows. And for the first time I said to the sky, Can't anyone hear me? Can't you hear me cry? The clouds flew by like they had been a spider up. Won't anyone hear me? Come on, beam me up. Oh, come on, beam me up. Cause that man's heart, it is darker, darker. Oh, that man's heart, it is darker, dark. You'd better believe that I ran for my life. I climbed out the window and I ran, I ran, 